Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts. Time for an overall. Let's go. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Again, so early this morning, I'm sitting here with a cup of coffee. The sun's just coming up here in Chicago area. And I'm thinking the fact that I can sit in my studio, turn on a couple of buttons and flip a couple switches and warm up a microphone and uh, I can talk to the world is something that still to this day somewhat boggles my mind. So much of my life actually boggles my mind. I've, you know, I, I get these opportunities to work with people and work on projects and connect with things and, and all this stuff that's happened in my life over the decades that I've been alive is some days it all just kind of backs up on me in a very good way. I feel very humbled by so much of what I get an opportunity to do. And I I also know that I've always put myself in a position to be there if there's an opportunity should, should, uh, arise. And, um, I've been working on this book with, uh, and for Randy Hunley, the great Chicago Cubs catcher of those 1960 and 70s teams. And I was writing a little bit about it yesterday and chewing on it a little bit here and there. And we're kind of moving out of the 60s into the 70s and when Randy's career ended and things like that. And I'm finding, my, I'm thinking, none of my English teachers would friggin' believe this, you know? But it was, there was one guy, I, it was a grammar school. Bill McLean was his name, Mr. McLean. And uh, he always reminded me, he looked like Fred Flintstone. And you know, kind of a kind of a burly guy with a shock of dark hair, and he was an English teacher, as I recall. And reading to me was always a very strong thing, and it comes out of growing up with my parents, who were voracious readers. We have this big library, for lack of a better term, this big bookcase in our hallway at the house that I grew up in. And my dad, and inevitably every two or three days, would would be pulling a book out of uh, that uh, bookcase and taking it with him to work. And, you know, I would be sitting there at the kitchen table watching this. He's in the hallway. I'm in the the little dinette area. And my curiosity gene really kicked in. I'm like, what's dad reading? What's going on over there with these books? Now, again, you have to remember, and I think it's important that I remember at times, there was only four channels on television. It used to go off at midnight and not come back on until 6 a.m. most of these channels. There was no such thing as 24-hour news. Nobody cared that enough to have 24-hour news. So we had four channels, two, five, seven, and nine, sometimes channel 11, but I didn't watch much PBS. It wasn't really a thing. And then on Friday nights, no, Saturday nights, we would tune in the UHF to either channel 44 or 32, you know, a little UHF dial on the side of the, the TV set. So limited income when it comes to the information that was heading our way. So books were like this thing. And uh, he would never tell me directly, you need to read this or you should read this. He would always just say, you might want to read this. That was enough to click my, uh, my curious box in my head. And eventually I'd sit there and eat breakfast, not usually before uh, school, mostly on the weekends, with uh, Ray Bradbury books in front of me. And I, I think from reading Ray Bradbury, that wasn't so much the content, which was fine, 
But I learned that you could say a lot in a very short amount of time. A lot of Ray Bradbury stories were short stories, and they just intrigued me that this guy could basically take a chunk of life that he could see in his head, this fictional stuff, and in maybe 20 pages, you know, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was just really something that stuck with me. So all these years later, to work on all these book projects that I've had, three of my own, uh, a fourth one that's kind of hanging off to the side here. It's a fictional piece that, you know, we'll see if it ever... It, it's very different writing a f- work of fiction than it is to write these nonfiction books because it's my life. I've lived this stuff. It's I can click it right out. Uh, fiction, a little different. So we'll see if that ever gets done. My life isn't hanging on whether or not that happens. Uh, but to do that and then to work on these other books for people, it's it's um, it's just... My, my parents would get a big kick out of it, I think. Uh, they were not here. My dad was still alive when my first book came out. Uh, but, um, no, actually they were both gone by then. Was it? Yeah, they were both gone. Uh, but I, you know, in, in all of that, uh, working with Randy, working with, uh, some of the other people I have another little project coming up, just a little side project to help somebody who has a book that's in Kindle needs to be in print and they're doing good work in the world. I, I get behind those things. Most of the people that I work with would never get a book contract. They'd never get a publishing contract because they don't have a, quote, platform to sell multitudes of books. So for various reasons, uh, I've been attracted to and connected with people who have an important story to tell, but because of this lack of a platform, no traditional publisher is really going to touch them. They're not going to certainly not give them an advance. And uh, you got to ju- jump through so many hoops at this point as, as you know, if you're an author that... It gets to be a daunting task. So I just really amazed when I come into my office here and I start clicking away at four o'clock in the morning on a book uh, about a guy that I watched playing baseball growing up. It's, it's surreal to me, much as it is getting behind this microphone most of the time. You know, I don't know how this quite happened, except I kept showing up and saying yes, and I'll try and figure it out. And apparently it's connected with people for going on 27 years. And that's amazing to me. I got a note the other day. Uh, from a show that I did, it's got to be a month ago now at this point, with Lisa Bradshaw, who I want to mention a little further in there because it was a nudge to me as a reminder. But Lisa Bradshaw's uh, uh, podcast with me, talking about her overcoming cancer as a young woman, and then her her husband, Wesley, um, had to have a double lung transplant because he was out in a garage one day working and something, fertilizer was wet and it should have been, and he inhaled it, and here's this young man eventually passed away at the age of 35. And her uh, story that has led to so much expansion in her life comes out of loss. And I got a nice note, I really need to pass this on to Lisa, that um, you know it was important for someone to hear it. I believe the woman was in Scottsdale, Arizona. You know, I, I listened to your, your conversation with Miss Bradshaw, and I've gone through you know some unimaginable loss and I want to thank you for having that conversation because it helped her. Now, I don't know what her loss was. She didn't get into it, how long it's been, who it was. But there's some universal themes here that I've always attempted to touch on because it'd be so easy. And I'd probably a hell of, make a hell of a lot more money than I've made in my career uh, if I stay out of the, the politics and the sports and the religion, which are really the three big uh, main drivers when it comes to uh, to talk radio or how talk radio used to be. It's I think it's changing a bit, but these universal themes that no matter how you vote or how you believe or, or where you live or what sports team you, you uh, applaud for, that there are these universal themes that you have to deal with this stuff despite all those. 
And I think it comes from the walk that I took in 1996, you know, from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which eventually became my home for 20 years, to Chicago and back. It was a calling on me that I, that I had premonitions of uh, through dreams for almost a year prior to the event taking place. I was in a very difficult time. Uh, a lot of pressures going on, and I had this recurring dream of walking, and I'd see myself on the side of the road with a backpack on, you know, with a beard and a stick in my hand, and uh, the sun rising or setting on my left, I couldn't tell, but it was illuminating from the left. And this went on and on and on. It was, just bugged the shit out of me. And a year later, roughly, we find ourselves, my family and I, uh, in two rooms at a small motel in Upper Michigan on U.S. Highway 2 in the bustling metropolis of Rapid River. And a couple weeks after we got settled in there and settled as a relative term because it, it was a very unsettling time, I had that dream again. I went to my friend Bruce Hardwick, Bakhtatha, from the Ojibwa tribe. And um, he said, well, you're having this vision and your subconscious is trying to tell you something and you could listen or not. And I listened. And everything I've done to a greater or lesser degree from that time is because of that listening and because of that. And th this voice that was insistent uh, that uh, I go on radio. It was the strangest thing in my life, but the most wonderful thing at the same time. And it falls in line, as does Lisa's story, about resurrection. So to be clear, tomorrow is Easter. This show is not about the resurrection, if that is what you believe in, the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. This show is about the resurrection on some level in our own lives, that we, we come out of these places that seem like death to us and that we crawl out of them for better or for worse, depending on our circumstances, and we have to go on. It's about rising again. And I think about how many times in my life, I, I mean, I literally woke up this morning knowing I was going to hopefully talk about this in some coherent fashion to make the delineation line between you know, the resurrection, which is what Easter is all about, and the resurrections that I've had in my own life and that we all have in our lives if we choose to see it that way. But there's power in that. Lisa's a perfect example. She has cancer when she's, you know, she's married at 22. By 24, she has cancer. By 35, her husband's gone, and she has a young son who's now like, I don't know, 25 years old, something like that. So, um, so, so coming out of that impenetrable loss as a young woman uh, without her husband, who she was you know, known since as a child, um, the kind of pressure and, and uh, pain that comes from that can be unimaginable unless you've gone through it. I actually listened to a little bit of the podcast with Lisa uh, before I started this one, and she talked about the unimaginable. Like, if you would have told me when Wesley passed away that I would ever have a life after him, I would thought that was unimaginable at the time. And I believe, and she illustrates the fact that we can go through these, these times and these events in our lives that are unimaginable to us. The losses that we endure and the pain that we suffer and the difficulties that come our way and the great challenges of rising, uh, it's, it's a daunting task, not for the faint of heart. And yet something happens to our heart in the process. I think when I do this show of my friends who have lost children, in various ways. I have a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, uh, two of them actually, who lost their kids in the same auto accident. Chelsea was 16 and Tim was 17. This is back in 2002. They'd be in their 30s now. And they were killed on a snowy night in, in Upper Michigan 
uh, and um, the, the reverberations and the ripple effect of their deaths at the time and to this day, you know, changed the community. And their parents uh, were in an unimaginable chapter of their life. And I know they, because uh, of conversations, I know there's no way they could see another minute without their kids. And yet they have gone through that. Doesn't mean that they've forgotten it. It doesn't mean they like it. Doesn't mean they've even accepted it. But they have risen above it in some ways. I have other friends who are close to me who've lost their sons in the war. Go pick one. Because uh, we sure like to crank those out. And I especially remember my friend Greg, who's I played semi-pro football with, uh, the six foot six. Uh, 265 pound, you know, rock of a guy uh, that when his son Nick was killed in action, uh, I went to the to the wake and I saw my friend walk out and he he had shrunken from the death of his son. And over time, I've seen him regain some of his original dimensions. And that's rising above does again doesn't it mean you like it doesn't mean you agree with it doesn't mean it doesn't kill you on some level but you rise above there's a resurrection that takes place and i think part of that is built into the human spirit the dna of of, of rising again you know you think of the multitudes of parents uh, that, that their sons never came back from war multi millions and for some, it was the end of their lives. And for some, they were able to rise above. And I don't know what the difference is. I really don't. Choice, chance, I, I couldn't tell you. But I do know that it's the opportunities there. And the concept of resurrecting ourselves from places that are difficult um, builds something in us or beckons something from us or even in some ways pulls something from us that was not there before. You can't imagine it going in, surviving the fill-in-the-blank experience, and yet on the other side of it, you can see a little clearer at times, not all the time, but a little bit clearer at times. And for me particularly, I, I just remember this one time, which is just, you know, an, an image in my mind uh, on, a, on a level that at the time for me was very, very difficult. As I mentioned, you know, left Chicago, took this long walk, started in radio, knew it was my calling, moved along the line a little bit. And I was... Uh, contacted by an agent and signed a three-year deal and was it three years i think it was anyway we get to the end of that contract and the people who i was working for i didn't have to worry about anything for it was a year it wasn't three years it was a year um that i'd have to worry about selling a show or anything I had a producer at an office it was fantastic thought i hit the big time so this would have been probably 1999 98 99 somewhere in there and uh after that year the guy who owned the station came to me and said uh, we've, we've decided to drop your show. We did, we've never really made any money on it. We've been paying you. And, um, unless you can figure out a way to raise money and do this, um, you're off. That's not what I wanted to hear. And I remember, uh, the difficulty of trying to, to come out of that situation. I had, uh, gotten the idea that I could take on investors and, I was naive to a greater or lesser degree that I could do this, meaning that people would believe in what I was doing and, and get behind what I was doing so I could, I could pay the bills and keep the producer and keep the office and all that kind of stuff. And we raised some money. One guy walked in and slapped down a check for $20,000 because of what I was 
doing on the air and they connected with that. And I was very clear to everybody, do not do this unless you can lose your money because I don't know what's going to happen in this business, but I'm giving it my best shot. And so, uh, I think we were able to make it probably six more months, eight more months, something like that. Even with the 20 grand, you know, you know, dealing that out, paying my salary, paying the producer, paying for the office, marketing, all the kind of stuff that goes into running a business. And I don't remember exactly how long we went, but when they got to the end of the line and I was unable to secure the national syndication I thought would take care of all this, uh, the bottom dropped out. That was it. And having to tell the people who invested in me that this is apparently where you're, as far as I'm going in this, but, uh, was very, very difficult. And some people were very close to me. Other people just knew me as, as the guy on the radio, either way they had put money in it. And I, I did not take that lightly to this day, to this day, I still think about that and thinking, I don't know how many people are still around or where I'd even find it, but you know, I've, I've never been able to pay them back except for doing what I keep doing. Uh, the amount of money that each one of them invested would be, uh, you know, in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, there was a couple times I was close to have all of it set aside to pay everybody back, uh, but it was a loss that, that I endured and they endured. And when I had to leave my office, I had friends of mine help me move out, and, and we moved you know, my desk and the whole thing, put it in storage. And I remember walking back in one day at the, uh, right before I turned the keys in and just falling apart. I mean, is this what I worked for? Is this what it's all about? This is why I took that walk and lived in a motel. And what's the point of, of you know, doing this if this is how it, it's, it's led me to this place? And I remember laying on the floor in the office just flat out. Like, are you effing kidding me? Why have all that happen? Why have me connect with people the way that I'm able to on the radio? Why this? Why this? Why this? And those were whys that didn't have any answers at that time. I could not see anything past that. And yet here I am all these years later. So the time between right now sharing that story with you, which I don't tell a whole lot of people, now that everybody knows it, and going all the way back to that day on the floor in my office, it was unimaginable events that I could see uh, that would pull these two together. And I think that's what faith is. You know, even though that day sucked and it was shitty, eventually in an evolutionary sense, in a spiritual evolutionary sense, I started to get back up again off my ass. Football taught me that a lot. You get knocked down, you get backed up. Sometimes it takes us a little bit longer to get back up. But that rising again, the resurrecting of myself, my higher self from all the circumstances that were around me was a really important lesson to me. To this day, I look at things very, very different. I don't look at them as permanent as they used to. When I went to Oprah Radio, I made the mistake of thinking that it was a, a landing pad, that I would be there like for 20 years. And that's not possible. That, but that's what was in my head. It was also the thing that I thought would give me the opportunity to, to take care of these investors that had put money in. Even though, as I said, it was it's like any other investment. You could lose it. It could be great. We'll see where it goes. I took it personally, as I should, and still do. But that was not the case. I was there four years. And as things unfolded, I started to see oh, okay, this is another chapter in the book of John here. And all the chapters I've had, as I go back and reread them now, they look very, very different to me as they did when I was in them. So this concept of resurrection is something I think that takes place 
if we allow it to, and we're able to see that on so many different levels. It's a, there's spiritual resurrection, which I think is a personal thing that you can come out of this dark time in our lives or be in a dark place yourself and work your way out of that, whatever that means to you. There's the resurrection of the spirit, which means to me is a little different than a spiritual thing. Even though the words in there are the same, the resurrection of the spirit, the energy we have that gets knocked out of us on a daily basis. You know, I can tell that I've been watching the news too much, which isn't even much for me because I have zero tolerance for it. I have zero tolerance for the news and zero tolerance for drug commercials. I just can't. I can't. I, when they come on, I just mute them because you see these people who are apparently healthy as all get out talking about drugs that, are, that could give you all these weird side effects. Anyway, I know I'm in that place when I'm numb to things. You know, there's another shooting. And it's like, oh, that's no big deal. It's a big effing deal. They're all big deals. But I've become so immune to it and numb to it that because it's apathy, there's not a thing I can do about it. You get into that space. So what happens after that is I usually will have an experience that wakes me up a little bit again and gets me back into being uh, not as numb to life. And it's, it's good things. It's little things, running into people, having conversations, getting an email from someone who listened to a show that I did with Lisa Bradshaw. And it's also fascinating to me. And that's one of the really cool things about podcasting. There's got to be 250 shows I've done over the last four and a half, five years now um, that are available for people to listen to. They're, they don't go away. When I was on, quote, terrestrial radio, I would do a show and that was the end of it. You know, we, we taped a lot of shows, but basically for the most part, they didn't rerun any time unless I wasn't there. Podcasting is very different. I could, there are shows I did two or three years ago that people still listen to. So I kind of like that aspect of it. Um, that's not to say I wouldn't mind being on the air every day. Five days a week, three hours a day, knocking out of the park. I think I still have a gas in the tank to do that, but whether that happens or not, it's kind of out of my out of my control. So in that stead, every Saturday morning, if not more than that, I'll jump behind the microphone here to fulfill what I was asked to do way back in 1996 in my mind, which was go on the radio, bring something of value, if at all possible. And that's a resurrection of sort. You know, that time in my life, was uh, it's, it was very different than my life is now. And it was exactly how it's supposed to be. I was in the worst time of my life at, at that time that I thought, you know, I, I had a college degree, I'd been in the service, and yet I was in a business deal that went south and everything I put in, we lost. And I, we had to move from our townhouse and live in a motel for a year with people we barely knew. And I felt like Joe shit the rag man every day which is very unusual for me. A pretty confident guy, I don't mind getting out in front, sticking my nose in, all good. But I was, I was down. And that dream kept coming back to me over and over and over again. And it was calling me to do something. And I chose to do that. And it led me to all this. But in the moment, I couldn't see it. That especially, that Christmas, the year that we moved out of Chicago, was so difficult. You know, everybody we knew thought I had lost my mind. I had my wife at the time with me. My kids were a little seven and five. We're living with people we barely know in a motel in the middle of effing nowhere in upper Michigan. And when you know someone who's as solid as it gets, which I like to think of myself back then, you know, I mean, I worked jobs and I worked hard and did all the right things across the T's and dotted the I's and I still ended up in this place, didn't add up to me. And it didn't add up to a lot of people. And that Christmas was very, very difficult. It was as dark as it got. And yet 
when spring started coming around, I started to get resurrected a little bit. There was a, I was able to rise above the stuff that was going on. And that leverage on myself came from a faith of something I couldn't see that was calling me. And I chose to follow it. And I think a lot of times, there's a lot of times in life I didn't say yes. And that's another road that gets shut off. I wish I could pull up the song. My friend David Stoddard has a song called Thousand Roads. And he also, I believe, did an album on it. Um, and he talks about for every choice you make, a thousand roads go away. You know, you never know what's going to be out there in that space. But this is where it's taken me. And it's some ways, I, I think, uh, man, I mean, I, you know, it's one thing to be uh, stubborn about stuff, but to, to, to take that walk and to find myself standing in the, in the very thing I had dreamt for so long, the very scene outside Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, and to hear in my head to go on the radio on that spot, most of my circuits got rewired, and that was a good thing. But to continue, do you think I'd ever thought I'd still be doing this all these years? Heck no. But here I am, and this is what I've been given to do, for better or for worse. Sometimes it's been way better. Like when you're working with Oprah, it's way better. When you're not, it's not as good as far as income and, and viability and all the stuff that goes, the bells and whistles that have uh, attachment in Oprah's orbit. And it was a great experience. Won't be duplicated in my lifetime, I don't think. Uh, but it was something that was such an important chapter in my life. It showed me, here's what the pinnacle looks like. But if you're only doing it when you're at the pinnacle, then you shouldn't be doing it all, John. So I'm at the other end of that on a Saturday morning at 4.30 uh, while I'm drinking coffee, waiting for the sun to come up, doing the exact same thing I did when I was at Harpo on my show, delivering the mail as best I can. And the reminder this morning of resurrection that it's not what happens to you in life that matters. It is not. Because you can't control most of what goes on in your life. I mean, there's some of it that's in your, at the end of your fingertips, but for the most part, you can't control it. Lisa could not control her husband getting sick and dying at the age of 35. My friends could not control their son and daughter being killed in an auto accident when they're 16 and 17. My friends could not control their son dying in the war at 25. So that's not it. But what is it where the power is at is in the resurrection of yourself, meaning it's not what happens, it's how you respond. It's how you respond that makes all the difference. And we're not taught that muscle very much in our lives. You know, Getting to the point where you can say, it's not what happens to me, but look what I was part of happening, that you're not a victim of it, but you're a participant, shifts the energy. And that's not to say there aren't days that I'm thinking, this is just a shit storm. And I don't want anything to do with it. But then I'm reminded, it's my shit storm. And this is the opportunity I have to respond differently than I did before, which is I've made no bones about many times over in the show, which is different than reacting. It's your response. Your ability to respond is your responsibility. And it's a muscle. And over time, it gets stronger or not, depending on how you use it. My final thoughts on this Saturday before Easter is remembering uh, Easter when I was a kid. My dad was a huge science fiction fan. My, uh, my love for horror movies and all that stuff comes directly from his uh, influence. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, we used to watch this movie called uh, Invasion of the Saucer Men, like 1957, right? So I was born in 58. And when I was a kid, I remember every now and again, this thing would come on TV. My dad loved all these shows. 
and it was the invasion of the saucer men. And, he, and the saucer men, their heads look like uh, Brussels sprouts. And somehow I made the connection between Brussels sprouts and the saucer men. And one year uh, for Easter, I got this big Easter basket. And I think, I can't remember exactly what was, there was something to do with that Saucer Men movie in the basket. I can't remember what my dad put in there. But I haven't eaten Brussels sprouts since I've seen that movie. And when I was married, probably in the first couple of years, my ex-father-in-law, I told him this story. So what did he do? He decided to take Brussels sprouts and paint little faces on them and put them in an Easter basket for me. So I have this aversion to Brussels sprouts and Easter. They're kind of all connected. That's just on the commercial level. Uh, on the rest of it, I, I just, uh, I leave people to their beliefs. I think we'd be better off if we just did that and mind our own business. As you see, I, I was restrained there. I could have said something, but I won't because I would have had to take it out anyway. Uh, there's a lot, I'll say shit all day, but the F-bomb, you know, that's just kind of at this point gratuitous. Uh, but I, I will say this as I get ready to wrap this up. You know, I, I don't script any of these shows. I just have a couple ideas in my mind of things I'd like to share. And I also remind myself that I'm sitting here to, to remember and remind myself as well that I'm not here to instruct anybody. I'm here to remind myself. And you all get to be witness to that. And if something here trips your trigger or it works for you, then the walk I took and the vow I took to follow the calling is worth it. I so appreciate all of you, especially the ones who have stuck with me since I started this four and a half years ago. It'll be, I think it's five years in May uh, that uh, I started the, this concept. This is just another iteration of everything I've done over the years. But the idea was, is to support this in some way, shape or form as a business model. So when I spend time on it, it's valuable to me and it's valuable to you. And I've always found value in things that I pay for much more than getting them for free. So all of you who have subscribed to this show, especially, as I said, the ones who've been with me since day one. I can't thank you enough for supporting that because it, it just underlies the fact that there's still value here for people. And they're plunking down a, a, a mere 20 bucks a month, five bucks a week, 66 cents a day uh, for me to do this. And, you know, we've added subscribers over the years and we've lost subscribers. It comes and goes, it's like anything else. But especially that core group of people, there's like 20, 25 of you that right out of the gate, have stayed with it. I deeply, deeply appreciate that. I wanted to uh, finish this up. You know, I've mentioned about not really being able to um, put music in these shows unless it's somebody I know. That way I know they're not going to sue me because I'm promoting their stuff. So I have a, a handful or so of, of friends of mine that uh, are performers and artists and songwriters and like that. And uh, I just, I just be able to pull from that reservoir when certain shows pop up. I'm not going to do it every week. But there are just certain shows and certain themes that I hear music in my head. And I think, well, I'll put that in. I think last Wednesday when I did the, uh, the podcast with Catherine Getsky, which was fantastic about hopelessness, uh, and how are those not tied together, being hopeless and being able to rec resurrect yourself? You can't resurrect yourself if you're hopeless. Hope is a big ingredient in all of this stuff. But I, I tagged uh, Sweet Surrender by John Denver on there because of the, just the certain line that said, uh, there's a light that shines for me. My life is worth living. I don't need to see the end. I think just that piece of it was, was what the whole song was built around to put into that, uh, that podcast. And this week, since I've been talking about Lisa so much, uh, she actually wrote this song. So in everything else she's done, she's a best-selling author. She's done a TED Talk. She does the Don't Wait Project. She's an amazing human being. 
She also wrote a song. And if you didn't hear it in the last time I, she and I spoke, then uh, this is your opportunity to do that right now. Until next time, be well, safe travels, keep the faith. Your smile, your brilliant mind, your stubbornness, and yes, you kind. A lot like you, but more like me. I knew you'd matter from the start, saved you a place deep in my heart. Some things are just meant to be. The deepest wounds. This beautiful life We lost the fight, God knows we tried You said be strong, you'll be alright Just raise our sun, you'll find your way The years go by, I'll tell you this Grief still shows up in what you've missed But I've kept my promise every Beautiful